What's up, guys? I am so pumped to be recording the third Rock Yo Bod Pod episode. And again, I just want to start by thanking all of y'all for your encouragement. It really does mean the world and inspires me more than you know. And I know I touched on this in the last episode, but y'all have just continued to reach out with support and words of encouragement. And I really just take it to heart and it does not go unnoticed. So thank you. Thank you. And I also want to thank everyone who submitted topic ideas through the Rock Yo Bod Pod Instagram. I love hearing from y'all and I'm so excited to explore the content you all sent in. You guys sent in some really great topics. Um, so we have some awesome conversations in the works. I'm so excited. And I also want to reiterate that I want y'all to always be a part of the conversation. So never hesitate to reach out with more topics you want to dive into. You all can send those to my personal account, the Rock Yo Bod Pod Instagram, or the Rock Yo Body Instagram. I'll respond to any of them. And I think you can go back to the Rock Yo Bod Pod Instagram and on the highlights reel, um, there's a highlight entitled Other. And I put the original Instagram story just asking for ideas on there. Um, so feel free to go back to that if that's the easiest way to do it. But I'll see those. I'll respond. Um, or maybe I won't respond to all of them because that's kind of hard. But um, I'll see it and definitely take note. So keep sending those in. And all those handles should be included in the show notes. So kind of a lot to keep up with. My digital media experience is really coming in handy. My parents will be so happy to know that my undergrad degree isn't all for nothing. But another housekeeping thought, definitely check out that Spotify playlist we started making last episode with the inspiring and empowering and motivational songs. I did title it Main Character Energy for now. But still taking all suggestions because I feel like we could still be more creative. But again, the vibes were channeling. So that's the title. So look at that. I did make it collaborative. So please add your favorites. I know I only gave three suggestions last time, but I couldn't contain myself and added more. So check those out. I've been jamming to it all week, but it'll be so much better with some loving from you guys too. So look for that. Um, so yeah, that's all the housekeeping stuff. So let's move into the good stuff of today's episode. And I know you all are anxiously awaiting a guest on this show. And trust me, I'm so pumped for that. We have some great things lined up and in the works. But for this episode, I wanted to cover some topics that y'all submitted because I think they're a great starting point when learning about eating disorders, body image, disordered eating, and all that fun stuff. I feel like it's important to address the basics before jumping into the deep end. So Let's just get our feet a little wet first, shall we? Um, and the first question that I want to address is, when did you know you needed help? And the second question was, when do you let others know you're struggling or are you better off keeping those things to yourself? Both are great questions and things that really got my wheels turning. So thank you to the two people that submitted those. And in order to adequately answer those, I think we really need to explore the topic of a clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder versus disordered eating. And I kind of touched on this gray area in the previous episode, but I think this is a very controversial but needed topic as this debate often prevents people from seeking the treatment that they need or could benefit from. And a little disclaimer, I am not a teacher or an expert and I do not claim to be one. I am simply sharing what I've learned thus far. And if anything I say goes against what you believe or hold as truth, please let me know and I will most certainly reevaluate my stance because that's how we learn. We admit that we aren't always right. So always open for learning, always open for new information that you guys might present me with. 
So first, let's get a little academic and let's explore a clinical diagnosis. This might be a little boring, but it is important. And I think this is really important to recognize when you're debating whether or not you need to get help. Because if you meet any of this criteria, you should go get help. Um, so a clinical diagnosis is made using the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. And this is basically the encyclopedia for all mental disorders. This is published by the American Psychiatric Association and has been revised numerous times, five times, hence the DSM-5. And each time they really have attempted to address the plethora of unique mental health struggles one might face by providing a diagnosis for each set of symptoms that someone might present. And it identifies and includes the criteria for 297 mental disorders. So shit, that is a lot. And the latest version was published in 2013. And while it might seem like it encompasses all things mental health, quite a bit has changed in the mental health field since 2013. And although the intention of the latest version was undoubtedly meant to be more versatile and multidimensional rather than categorical, so putting people in these boxes, it's inevitably, inevitably whew, words are hard today, um, inevitably still pretty categorical. Um, and just like the dictionary, it's impossible to confine the definition of certain words into one sentence as it's nearly impossible to confine all a client's presenting symptoms to a DSM checklist. So definitely keep this in mind when I'm going over the criteria for certain disorders. And we'll dive more into that in a little bit, but I think that's a major fault in holding the DSM as the holy book or like Bible for diagnosing, because this leads people to think they're not sick enough if they don't meet certain criteria or all the criteria for a clinical diagnosis. So what do those clinical diagnoses for eating disorders look like? Well, there are eight main diagnoses listed in the DSM. I won't name all those, but some that you may not be as familiar with are rumination disorder, um, other specified feeding or eating disorder, and unspecified feeding or eating disorder. And those two have been added in the most recent revision of the DSM. Um, so we'll talk about those, but then obviously there's anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, and anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa are just two old friends that I know so well. Um, but those others, the other specified feeding or, or eating disorder and the unspecified feeding or eating disorder, I feel like we never hear about those as they have been added more recently. Um, at least I hadn't heard of them until I started my psychopathology class. But those essentially encompass a category of disorders in which individuals may present symptoms of a various eating disorder, um, but they don't meet the needed criteria for an actual diagnosis or to fit in that diagnostic class. So I really do appreciate the effort of the American Psychiatric Association or the APA for creating a diagnosis for individuals who don't check all the boxes, because this is awesome. Like if you go to a therapist and you want insurance to cover your sessions, you kind of need a diagnosis um, so they see that you qualify for coverage. So this diagnosis provides you with the coding needed to qualify for that coverage. Um, but like I said, you never hear about these diagnoses, so you may be discouraged from seeking treatment because we just don't know about it. So there are lots of feeding and eating disorders, but I'm going to touch on the ones we hear about most often, which are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. So first, we have anorexia nervosa, and I'm going to get pretty much all this information straight from the DSM, so there's no confusion, and we just get as clinical as possible. So going to be kind of dry, but 
important. I'm going to give a Cliff Notes version, but it's pretty spot on. So we have Criterion A. And I feel so weird saying Criterion. Like, I never know when you should use Criterion and Criteria. But I Googled it, and Criterion is singular and Criteria is plural. So Criterion A is restriction of energy intake relative to what is needed, leading to significantly low body weight in the context of one's age, sex, developmental trajectory, and physical health. And significantly low weight is defined as weight that is less than minimally normal or expected. And then we have Criterion B, which is intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat, which hmm, sounds familiar, um, or persistent behavior that interferes with weight gain, even though at a significantly low weight. And then there's Criterion C, which is disturbance in the way in which one's body weight or shape is experienced, undue influence of body weight or shape on a self-evaluation, or persistent lack of recognition of the seriousness of the current low body weight. So just really subtweeting me when I spoke about the association between my weight and worth in the previous episode and my denial of the seriousness of my situation. But those are the main criteria um, that needs to be met for anorexia. And then there are specifiers that clinicians will use for coding purposes, like restricting type, binge eating, purging type, and partial remission or full remission. And then levels of severity, which are based on the BMI scale, which I also kind of touched on last time. And I really don't love the BMI scale um, because this denotes the severity of some cases if people don't fall within that range. And this also equates sickness to a number, which we all know illness cannot be confined to a number. But I don't make the rules and I certainly don't want to write this book. So we're going with it. So moving on to the second beast, bulimia nervosa. Again, I'm just going to go through the criteria. So criterion A is recurrent episodes of binge eating. And that episode is characterized by eating in a discrete period of time, so a two-hour time frame, an amount of food that is definitely larger than what most individuals would eat in a similar period. And there's also a sense of lack of control over eating during that episode. So feeling like you can't stop eating, control what or how much you're eating. Um, so for me, it was I felt like I couldn't control what I was eating or what the content of that food was like calorie wise. Um, and then criterion B is recurrent and appropriate compensatory behaviors in order to prevent weight gain, such as self-induced vomiting, misuse of laxatives or diuretics. So diet pills or other medications, fasting or excessive exercise, which I think the last two are kind of sneaky because those behaviors are definitely glorified in today's society, which is just sad and perpetuates or encourages people um, to do these things. And then criterion C, um, the binge eating and compensatory behaviors both occur, occur, gosh, sorry, words are just really hard. Um, The binge eating and compensatory behaviors both occur on average at least once a week for three months. And this gets me thinking about my own experiences. Like I definitely wasn't engaging in the compensatory behavior that frequently, which gave me a false sense of control and reassurance in the fact that I didn't qualify for a legitimate bulimia nervosa diagnosis. Not that I knew like anything in this book then, but I could kind of put it together that my case wasn't severe enough to land me in treatment or warrant immediate clinical attention. And then criterion D is self-evaluation is unduly influenced by body shape and weight. So again, this false tie to worth, um, And then criterion E, the disturbance does not occur exclusively during an episode of anorexia nervosa. 
Um, and this just speaks to the comorbidity among eating disorders or the overlap between disorders that we touched on in the last episode. Um, so in those cases, you would use the binge eating purging type specifier with an anorexia nervosa diagnosis, which is more than you all probably care about. But it's helpful in reminding yourself that just because you don't check that box for bulimia nervosa, there is still a diagnosis for you. And again, there's more specifiers for this category and levels of severity. So the last one we're going to touch on is binge eating disorder. And this is definitely a tricky one as there isn't a look or weight that society associates with it, um, further discouraging people from getting help or spreading awareness because they feel like they don't look sick enough. And the first diagnostic criterion is recurrent episodes of binge eating. So it's the same as last time. The episodes include eating more than a normal amount of food during any two-hour period um, and a sense of lack of control over eating during that episode. And then criterion B is eating much more rapidly than normal, eating until feeling uncomfortably full, eating large amounts of food when not physically hungry, eating alone because of feeling embarrassed by how much one is eating, and feeling disgusted with oneself, depressed, or very guilty afterward. And then criterion C, this is marked by distress regarding binge eating. Um, And then criterion D, the binge eating occurs on average at least once a week for three months. Again, this time frame and frequency may scare people away and make them feel like they're not sick enough. And then criterion E, the eating is not associated with compensatory behaviors as seen as, as seen in bulimia nervosa and doesn't occur exclusively during the course of bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa. So you're just eating a lot. Um, but you're not going for a run afterwards. You're not purging. You're not using laxatives. So just the binge eating episodes. And then again, more specifiers for that. So who I can take my teaching pants off. Um, that's as academic as we are going to get. Um, but those are the textbook definitions for the most talked about eating disorders. And I feel like we hear the terms anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating thrown out way more often than those other ones. So that's why I just touched on those. Um, but we never really hear about the extent of their literal meaning of each. So I hope that that provides you all with some clarity surrounding those distinctions. But like I said earlier, if one doesn't check all the boxes but presents symptoms of any of those, they likely qualify for another specified or unspecified feeding or eating disorder, which is great because, yay, you have representation on a clinical level. And all of that brings me back to the first question, how I knew I needed help. Um, For me, in the midst of my disorder, I had no idea how many boxes I actually checked but meeting with a clinician, so initially my pediatrician then therapist made me realize that I was essentially the textbook definition of anorexic. And I came to this realization through psychoeducation, so not on my own. Um, so that was really therapeutic conversations that enlightened me to the extent and severity of my disordered thoughts, behaviors, and actions. And while great, we love increasing our awareness to these things, that did not diminish my fear of gaining weight but that did increase my fear of more intense treatment. So inpatient treatment or even hospitalization, because that's the severity we were working with, which was good because that served as a wake up call. And that was really my aha moment of like, shit, you need help, even if you don't want the help. Um, And I realize I'm a severe case. And I know that most of y'all listening probably don't have a clinical diagnosis. But if you find yourself checking any of those boxes for restricting, binging, an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat, eating alone and in private, 
Whatever it may be, I highly recommend you at least consider getting help, no matter the intensity, frequency, or duration of your symptoms. And that's really why I went through all of those clinical definitions, because I want you all to hear that. And if you check those boxes, this is me urging you, please get help. And this also brings me to the second question. Are you better off keeping these struggles to yourself or telling others? And this is a hard one for me. From the standpoint of a developing therapist, I'm like, hell yes. Tell others if you're experiencing any of these thoughts or engaging in these behaviors. Why wouldn't we want to address these things, whether it be with a professional or a family member or friend? If you're not speaking it, you're storing it and we can't heal what we don't acknowledge. Um, But as someone who's recovering from an eating disorder, I know this is 100% easier said than done. For me currently, I feel more than comfortable addressing disordered thoughts with a therapist in session, which I would hope because you're paying X amount of money to go see them. And that's the occupation that I'm training to be in. Um, But I do still struggle bringing it up to friends and family. For those of you that follow Rock Your Body, you know I'm very open and talking about my struggles with body image on that platform. But a majority of the time, that's how my family and friends know I'm struggling. I rarely engage in open dialogue aside from little comments like these jeans make me look fat or I'm sending the stress back because it's too unflattering. And I think the reason for this is twofold. One, I hate, like literally despise asking for help or admitting that I need something. I would 100% rather make someone else feel better when they're experiencing these thoughts and have someone try and cheer me up. And I think this just really speaks to the fact that I'm an avoidant person when it comes to emotions. Like asking for help means that I have to acknowledge I have a problem and no one admit wants to admit that they have something that needs to be fixed. Because when something needs to be fixed, that means that I don't have control. Bringing me back to what fed my eating disorder in the first place, a constant need for control. And I also know that a majority of the time, people may not know how to respond to this. So I don't want to ask for a response they don't know how to give. So that's the first aspect of this. And then I think another reason, so point number two, is that I don't want them to question my recovery or stability. And this is a huge barrier to me, verbalizing my current struggles. And this for sure stems from the fact that I had to be okay in the early stages of my recovery in order to maintain my freedom. So like going to college and eating out with friends, I had to be okay to keep those things in my life. So I fear that in showing my vulnerability now, that vulnerability may be mistaken as weakness, which sure, vulnerability or weakness in the early stages of my recovery may have resulted in the loss of those freedoms. But given my relapse freshman year, which I talked about in the last episode, maybe it should have. So if you're worried that people may question your stability if you reveal your struggles, ask yourself, do they have the right to question these things? While no one wants their stability questioned, that may be the push you need to get help or talk to someone. So those are the reasons I'm ambivalent to voice my struggles with friends and family that I know you all might relate to. But I'm going to play devil's advocate and argue those reasons because we should voice our struggles no matter how big or how small to others, whether it be with a professional or not. So to sum it up, what was really preventing me from voicing my struggles to others? Ultimately, it was vulnerability, right? But a lesson that I've learned is that vulnerability in no way equates to weakness. If anything, it equates to strength. And one of the greatest vulnerability researchers of all time is Brene Brown. 
Y'all, she is such a badass. Um, you may have seen her TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability, or you might be familiar with her book, Daring Greatly, which I'm currently reading. She's amazing, and I literally want to highlight every word she says. So yeah, she's super profound. Um, and I wanted to pull some quotes because I think some of these are really relevant to this context. And first, she defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So vulnerability is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And I love this. And you know what's nowhere in this definition? Weakness. Hmm, when you look at that. And where would we be without uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure? Innovation would be a fictional notion. No one would have the courage to explore and execute creativity. We would never learn anything because learning means admitting we're not always certain. And connection would be non-existent. Every relationship involves a different level of emotional exposure, no matter how close individuals are. So the evolution of society and our culture as we know it would cease to exist without vulnerability. And another quote I loved was, when you shut down vulnerability, you shut down opportunity. And yes, louder for the people in the back, when you shut down vulnerability, you shut down opportunity. Like, yes, preach. I want to clap right now. Um, without vulnerability or a willingness to try new things, we would never open new doors. And I like to use this little house metaphor. So we would remain locked in a house, a house that embodies our comfort zone. And yeah, we may be comfortable there. We might be cozy on the couch and it might be easier to keep the doors closed and stay inside, but we would never grow. We would never learn. We would never connect. We'd remain essentially locked in our own minds, dismisses, dismissive of the emotions or disordered thoughts and feelings whirling outside and knocking on the door. And some doors are just worth opening, you guys, especially at the cost of your mental health. Yeah, some disordered eating thoughts and behaviors may not bust down that door, but why would you even want to risk it? At least peek through the window and make sure they're not harmful. Like when you sense yourself struggling with disordered thoughts surrounding food, exercise, and body image, evaluate those thoughts instead of suppressing them and leaving them outside. If you think those thoughts aren't going to bust down the door, then perhaps leave the door closed. But if you think those thoughts look bigger and badder and more severe than they should be, perhaps open that door and see what they're all about. At least look at them through your little ring camera. You can still say stay safe, but you need to evaluate them to some extent. And the way we open that door or take a peek is through vulnerability. With ourselves first and admitting that something might be wrong, and then to others. We can't go to others with a problem if we can't recognize it ourselves first. And how do we define a problem? How do we distinguish a disordered thought from a normal thought? Well, ultimately, you're the only one that can do this. I know it'd be great if I could tell you yes or no, but ultimately, it's up to you. And if any of your thoughts or actions resemble the ones listed above that we talked about in the DSM, then they are likely disordered or not likely, they are disorders. Um, and even if they don't fit a clinical checklist, but you find yourself thinking about food more than normal, you find yourself saying no to lake trips to avoid being in a bathing suit, you say no to dinners out so you can control what's in your food, you can't take a day off from the gym, your bad body image moment turns into a bad body image day, then you could probably benefit from talking to somebody, whether it be a friend or a professional. And in recovery, that's typically how I keep myself in check. 
like I said in the previous podcast, I will not love everything about my body all the time. But does that prevent me from living my life to the fullest? Does that keep me from doing things that a normal 20-something-year-old should be able to do? Does that affect the love I have for the human inside my body? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, while I still don't meet the criteria for a clinical diagnosis, someone's knocking on my door and I need to answer that door, daring to be vulnerable to make sure my walls don't cave in and that door is not busted down. Because they came, come a-knocking and they come in hot. Um, and think of how you would respond to a friend saying these things and practice that same compassion with yourself. And trust me, it has taken numerous therapy sessions for me to embrace this vulnerability. But do y'all think I'm weak? It's always the bravest family member that answers the door, right? Like I would hide behind my sister and be like, no, you go answer the door. But she was always brave for answering that door. So no, vulnerability makes you brave and bravery breeds strength. And I feel a hell of a lot stronger for it and for opening those doors. And I invite you to share this strength with me because it's a lot more empowering to open those doors. So if y'all haven't noticed, I'm a huge metaphor gal. And I really do like that house metaphor with the doors. Um, But another way to think of it, if you were like, what the hell was she saying? is like text messages because this is a way to just comprehend it in kind of a less serious way. Um, so yes, we receive hundreds of text messages every day. Um, maybe not hundreds. I'm not that popular, but I receive a lot of text messages every day and I know you guys do too. And if you're anything like me, I am the worst at responding to these messages. But if I sense that a text is more serious, I will undoubtedly respond as needed. So for example, say you think to yourself, I shouldn't eat breakfast today because I overate last night. If your friend texted you this, would you leave it on red or respond? You'd probably respond, right? You'd be like, shut the fuck up, just eat. Um, and that's the end of that, a short and easy text, but probably worthy of a response and maybe slightly concerning. And then on a more serious note, if your friend texted you and said, I don't want to go to the beach with our friends because we'll say Jimmy will be there and I don't want him to see me in a bathing suit because I'm not loving my body right now and feeling too hot. That message is probably worthy of a lengthier response, maybe even a phone call because clearly there's a deeper insecurity than just her body. So again, think of how you would respond to a friend saying these things and practice that same compassion with yourself. If you feel like the thoughts you were saying to yourself are worthy of an explorative or combative response, I almost said competitive, combative response, it's probably worth getting help and probably worth seeking a response from a friend or a professional. And again, that takes vulnerability, the vulnerability that Brene Brown teaches us all about, and you will be so much stronger for it. So that is my very long-winded answer to those two questions with those two metaphors, but that's what really helps me and that's how I keep myself in check. I mean, I even forgot what those questions even were, Um, but I really hope this helps provide some clarity on knowing when to get help and whether or not to share your struggles with others. And I really do appreciate the vulnerability that you all showed in submitting those questions. So thank you for that. And I appreciate you all for sitting in my vulnerability with me. So thank you all for listening. For sure, check out Brene Brown's TED Talk if you haven't. And for sure, keep adding songs to the main character energy playlist 
I wish I knew how to add a song to the end of this because I feel like we could always use something to just take us home after all of my talking. Um, but yes, go check that out. Stay tuned for the next um, podcast coming out soon. You can check those updates out on the Instagram. We have an amazing guest coming on the next episode that you all won't want to miss. I'm so excited. And I hope you guys felt something through all of this. To be continued. Love you guys. 